Turn with me to the book of Exodus. It's the the second book of the Bible. If you want to pull out one of the the church Bibles from the pew rack in front of you, you'll find this on page 73. We're going to read a few short verses from Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 12, reading through to the end of verse 16. We kick off our series on enjoying God from, from these verses, a conversation taking place between Moses and the Lord. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he, that's Moses, said to God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do ask that you would uh, draw near to us once again this evening and, and be our teacher. There are so many good things in your word, often challenging things, uh, often convicting things, but, but ultimately good things, because all of them come from the God of love who desires to be in relationship with us, his people, and show us how to make the most of, of this life. So help us to wrestle with this text, the encouraging things, the challenging things, everything in between, that we might hear a word from you tonight, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a sense in which we, we live in a culture of more, a culture that always wants more. Materialists want more. They want more money, more technology, more clothes. And minimalists, they want more too. They want more time, more space, more balance. And marketers know that we always want more, and so they tell us things like uh, more saving, more doing, Home Depot, right? Or a couple others, get more, T-Mobile, do more, American Express. Um, do you know tonight what is it that you want more of? What do you want more of tonight? Think about this question. Don't worry, I'm not going to pick on anyone, but I want you to have an answer in your own, in your own heart, in your, in your own mind. What is it you want more of? Is it the classic things, more money, more sex, no more, more power? Uh, is it things like more confidence, more security, more peace? Perhaps it's the less obvious things. Students, perhaps we're at the stage right now where all we want is more summer. We want to make it to the end of the semester. We maybe just want to pass these exams. That's what, that's what we want more of. Perhaps what you find yourself wanting more of tonight is actually more certainty, unsure about what's going on in your career life or in your, in your, personal, your personal life. Perhaps you want more peace, more peace to fix that problem in your marriage or help with raising these kids. What is it that you want more of? Well, you see, tonight we're going to see from the Bible that the desire for more isn't always a bad thing. If you're expecting that, you know, like the standard churchy kind of preachery thing, like, oh yeah, everyone wants more and it's wrong, we should want less. That's, that's not the sermon tonight. 
In fact, we're going to see in our passage tonight that, that often the desire for more is, is good. That's what our passage is all about. So if you'd pick up your Bible and turn with me, Exodus 33 is our text, page 73 of the church Bible. We're going to uh, catch the, the flow of this text and, and find, our, find our way through this story together. We're joining the story at a remarkable moment in the history of God's people. God has rescued his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. So the Israelites, God's people, were, were slaves to the Egyptians. And God had promised them that he would redeem them. He would buy them back from slavery. And now this promise has been fulfilled in the most dramatic of of fashions. If we read through the earlier chapters of Exodus, chapters 10 and following, we read about about the plagues. Do you remember the plagues? God redeems his people by sending blood and frogs and gnats and flies and dead livestock and boils and hail and locusts and darkness and, and death. Then we read about the actual, the exodus itself, when they leave, leave Egypt, and God miraculously enables them to cross through the Red Sea as it, as it parts before them. Then we've read of God providing for his people in the wilderness. They're, they're now in the desert without any provisions, and so the Lord takes a, a bitter spring of water and makes it taste sweet, and he sends down bread from heaven so that they'll be able to eat. And now we've just read in Exodus 20 and following of of God giving his people the law. Now that they are free from Egypt, he gives them the the rules to govern his loving relationship with them. It's been a wild, white-knuckle, exhilarating, joyful journey for the people to be redeemed from slavery in Egypt. But then comes chapter 32. Flick back there with me. Look at the first few verses of this chapter. How do the Israelites respond to the redemption from slavery in Egypt? Verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, this is the mountain where he's been getting the Ten Commandments, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, another leader in Israel, and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. My staff say, that's what they'll say about me in sabbatical. Verse 2. So Aaron said, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Verse 3. So all the people took the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Verse 4. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Ugh. It's a disastrous response to the goodness of God. It's a ruinous response to, to the redemption of God. It would be almost unbelievable were it not for the fact that we were also aware of our, our own tendency to sin. God has delivered them, and here they are, already forgetting their Redeemer, already worshiping other gods. How is God going to respond? We'll look at the start of chapter 33. He responds like only a God of grace would respond. Despite their absolute rejection of him as their Redeemer, at the start of chapter 33, God once again reiterates his promise to, to, to give them the land of Canaan. 
Though they have been unfaithful to him, though they have betrayed him the second they are out of Egypt, he responds by um, saying once, once more that, yeah, I made this promise to give you the land and I'm going to fulfill that promise. Look at verse 1 of, of chapter 33. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land to which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. Verse 2, I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Though you've been unfaithful, I promise to give you this land and I'm still going to give you this land. But then look at verse 3. See what he adds there. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you. Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Think about what the Lord is saying here. He's saying, yes, I'm going to give you the pleasure and the treasure of the promised land. And I'm going to send my angel before you to give you victory over your enemies. You're going to enjoy peace and, and prosperity. And not only that, you're also going to enjoy this, the sweetest delights of, of milk and honey once you get there. But I will not go with you. You can have it all, but you won't have me. You can have it all, but you won't have me. I wonder, I wonder how we'd respond to that offer. What is the thing you want more of? What's the thing you thought of at the start of the service? What if the Lord said, you can have it? Money, sex, power, straight A's, a promotion, a happy family. What is the thing that you want? You can have it, but you'll have it without me. All the blessings can be yours with 10,000 beside but you won't have the blesser himself. How would we respond? I don't know, but here's how Moses responds. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 of chapter 33, we get Moses' response where he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up out from here. I can have it all, but it's not enough. I want more. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Here Now, can we just pause and, and think about the flow of Israel's history right now to understand how amazing these words are. The promise of the land, the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, this has been one of the two key promises that God has made to his people Israel. And they have waited for centuries for this promise to become a reality. And now they're at that moment where it's, where it's about to become a reality. It's not just a realization of, of Moses' life's work. It's a realization of the generations before them, hopes and, and dreams. And Moses is given the opportunity to be the one who leads them in. He's going to enjoy a, a life of, of, of wealth and ease, the man who has, who has it all. And he's going to leave behind him just, just an amazing legacy. If you're the dude who leads Israel into the promised land, right, you go down as, as one of the best ever. He's about to be given everything but he turns it down. Why? Because it comes without God. That's what he says. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. He's saying, you're offering me everything, but it comes at too high a cost. I want all of those things, but I want God most. I want God most. I see what you're offering, God, but I want more. I want more. I want you. Moses gives us the, the key teaching of this text. Here's the key teaching, summary of this passage. It is true that God saves us from our sin, 
but God also saves us that we might enjoy relationship with him. Yes, God saves us from sin. And also, God saves us that we might enjoy relationship with him. Can we just try get our arms around the, the teaching of this text with just two quick ideas? First of all, it is true that God saves us from sin. It is true that God saves us from him. We have, we have union with God. We were once separated from him, but we've been reconciled. We're back in relationship with, with him. Theologians refer to this as our, our union with God. Once we were far from God, we were slaves, not, not slaves in Egypt, right, but slaves to sin. And like God redeemed his Old Testament people, so he's redeemed his, his New Testament people also. He's, he's bought us back. Now, he didn't buy us back through, through plagues and an exodus and the giving of the law. He bought us back through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who is our redeemer. What does that mean? The one, who, the one who buys us back. What does he buy us back with? His very blood. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption. We're bought back through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Yeah, once we were far from God, but in Jesus, we've been, we've been brought near. We've been united to him. We've been reconciled to him once more. And that forgiveness, that union, that reconciliation is, is based entirely and exclusively and solely upon God's goodness and grace toward us. The Israelites had nothing to do with getting out of Egypt, and we have nothing to do with getting out of our sin. It's an act of God on our behalf solely because he loves us. It's only his kindness that can reconcile us to, to him. And so we celebrate as Christians that we have this kind of forgiveness, that it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, we can all stand at the foot of the cross and be forgiven full and free because Jesus loves us. Christianity is about forgiveness of sin. It's about union with God. But can we spend most of our time on this second half of this sentence? It's also about more than that. It's about that, but it's about, it's about more. Because God didn't just save us from our sin. He also saved us that we might enjoy relationship with him. We have union with God, forgiveness of sin, but we also have communion with God. We're able to enjoy our relationship with him. It's staggering to think but that, that God wants to give us more than salvation. Uh, God wants to give us, give us more. He wants to give us himself. We have a God who wants us to enjoy him. Now, why, why would God want us to enjoy him? Three quick ideas under this heading of of communion, of enjoying relationship with God. Here they are. First of all, why does God want us to enjoy him? Because God wants us to enjoy him because when we, when we enjoy God, we, we bring him glory. There's a connection between our enjoyment of God and the glory that he gets. To, to give him glory just means to celebrate him, to, to make, him look, make him look great. And when we enjoy him, we glorify him. We make him look great. The best illustration of this is, is Moses himself. Think about it. Moses is offered all the pleasure and all the treasure of the promised land. He's offered peace. He's offered prosperity. He's offered good things. You understand? He's, been, he's not been offered bad things, sinful things. He's been offered good things that God had even promised to, to give him. But he says, while these things are good, I want God more. So yes, earthly success, that's really good, but I want God more. And peace from my enemies, that's really good, but I want God more. 
and leaving an impressive legacy. That, that is good, but I want God more. And milk and honey, awesome. Great ideas, God, but I want God more. You see, he's saying, um, I enjoy God more than I enjoy anything that this world has to offer. And in so doing, he makes God look glorious. Because <laughs> he's saying, God's better than all those things. God is better than all those things. When we enjoy God, we glorify him. And as Moses did that, we are called to do the same. Look at the front of your worship guide. You know this language is on the front of your worship guide every single week. Bottom left, what does it say? Our vision statement. How does it begin? With the reason that we exist as a church. Why we're here. Why are we here? We exist to glorify and enjoy God. Enjoying God and, and giving him glory by our enjoyment of him wasn't just some like Old Testament thing that, that Moses did. This is something that we are called to do as well, to enjoy God and thereby give him glory. Think about, the, it's, just such an, it's an amazing economy that God has established, that God is glorified, God is made to look great when we enjoy him. See, God didn't have to set things up that way, Right? He could have got glory, like Presbyterians often believe God is most glorified in us when we are most miserable in him, right? Um, and that's just not the gospel. The gospel, you know, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we enjoy God more than anything else, we make him look great. So for example, money is good. You know money is not sinful. The Bible says love of money is the root of all evils. It doesn't say money is the root of all evils. Money is a good thing. It's a gift from the Lord that we might be, you know, provided for and sustained and enjoy this world. But we say, yeah, it's good, but God is better. Money's good, it's fine, but God is better. And so I'm going to use my money in a way that actually gives me more of the thing I want most. I'm going to use my money as a good thing, but really as a means to get me more God. So I'm going to be generous, and I'm going to give to the deacon's fund, and I'm going to bless other people in the ways that God has blessed me in order that through this thing that God has given me, I might get more of him. Or, or sex. You know, sex is a great thing. Sex was also God's idea, right? Milk, honey, sex, all the good things. All God's plan, all God's ideas. He dreamt them all up. Uh, so we say, yeah, sex is good, but, but God is better. So we're going to use this good gift in a way that gets us more of him. So we're going to pursue purity before marriage, and we're going to pursue purity in marriage, and we're going to pursue purity after marriage, because ultimately this thing is not about the thing itself. It's about enabling us to enjoy our, our God. Or, or power. Power is good, but we want more God more. So we're going to use any power that we have with, with humility. We're going to wield it carefully. We're going to exercise any authority that we've been given for the welfare and, and flourishing of, of, of those around us. We're going to use our power in a way that gives us more God. Or our health, last example, our health. Health is good, but we want God more. And you know, the time will come for every single one of us when our health will fail and it will be the means by which we're ushered into the presence of the thing that we want most. Like, you will have to die well. And we can, because we want God more than we want health. We want God more than we want life. And see when we enjoy God, more than money, more than sex, more than power, more than health, we make him look glorious. We make him look glorious. So let's enjoy God and make him look better than these things together. Secondly, 
second idea under this heading of, of, of communion. But why does God want us to enjoy him? Well, first, because when we enjoy him, we bring him glory. But secondly, uh, God wants us to enjoy him because when we enjoy him, it makes us happy. Right? This, again, might be a strange idea as we think about God, but you know, like God didn't like design the world in a way that would make us the most miserable, okay? We are the ones that introduce sin into the world. Sin, that was our idea. This wasn't God's idea. God created us that we might be in a joyful relationship with him and he has redeemed us that we might be back in that joyful relationship with him so that yes we give him glory but so that we would also be happy okay we had um we had our monthly senior saints lunch this week okay here's what one of our oldest members said are you ready for some wisdom okay here's some wisdom she says when you're younger and you have a family i don't think you're aware of your dependence constantly on the lord because you have so many other things to do. So when you're young, you get busy, you get distracted, you forget about God. Right? As you age, I am very dependent constantly. Day in and day out, I constantly pray for assistance to be able to stay in my home and be able to drive and, and be free. So your concept of what the Lord is doing in your life, though he's always been working, is quite different because as you age, you have more time to realize that he's working in your life. Right? Then she says this. When you're Christian and you're older, you get up every day and you're happy because the Lord will guide you through your day. Now, these last two sentences. When I hit the big 9-0, <laughs> I was just going to enjoy life. Last sentence, the Lord holds me up and I'm having a ball. The Lord holds me up and I'm having a ball. Halfway through her 10th decade, she's enjoying God more than ever. She's come to understand that, that true joy isn't just found in the things of this world. Money, sex, power, health. True joy is found in God. And so her joy is getting stronger even as everything else gets weaker. Even as everything else gets weaker. And friends, I know or for myself, um, it's just a it's a struggle for us to fight the fight of faith and believe that this is true. To believe that life with God truly is the most fulfilling and most rewarding life of all. That the most sort of selfish, hedonistic thing you could do would be in relationship with the God who made your soul and loves you. And I get how hard it is to believe this. I do. You know... Talk to a high schooler. You're really telling me that like walking with God is better than sex with my girlfriend? Right? Talk to someone caught up in the midst of career ambition. Like you'd really tell me that walking with God would make me happier than, 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 than this success? Um, someone struggling with you know, financial security. You're really telling me that God, he seems so distant that like that's actually gonna be, be better for me to know him than to have the immediacy of, of financial security? Here's what our text has to say, and I, I love this. When we struggle to believe this, the problem isn't that we're overestimating the joys of the world. The problem is that we're underestimating the joy of God. Can I say that again? The problem isn't that we're overestimating the joys of this world. God has filled our world with joys <laughs> that, that we are free to enjoy. So our problem isn't, the problem is that we're, we're underestimating how good it is to be in relationship with 
the Lord. Ultimately, joy is like a necklace. You see beads of it here on earth, but you can trace them all back to the source where it hangs around the neck of God. He is the source of all joy. He is the provider of all blessings. And none of the blessings are better than actually knowing the blesser. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote about this better than anyone else. C.S. Lewis, whatever he wrote on, he wrote on better than everyone else. Um, I kind of hate him. Here's what he says. Uh, If you've been around the church, you'll have heard this, but let let it hit you fresh, okay? It would seem that our Lord finds our desires are not too strong, but too weak. The problem with your heart is not that you want more. It's that you don't want enough. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Earthly blessings are great. They're just not as great as the blesser. They're weak in comparison to knowing God. And if you set your joy, your, the focus of your joy upon any of them, then over time your joy will decrease. You cannot take money, sex, power, health with you to the grave. But if you set your joy on the Lord, it will grow stronger as everything else grows weaker. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures evermore. The word of God telling us, how, where do you find joy? In the presence of God. Where, where can pleasures forevermore be found? At the right hand of, of God. It is only in relationship with him that we can be truly happy. And so God calls us to himself that we might find our joy in him. Okay, third thing. Uh, communion with God, relationship with him. God wants us to enjoy him because it glorifies him, because it's good for us, brings us, brings us joy. But a third reason, final final reason. God also wants us to enjoy him because when we enjoy him, um, we say something powerful to, to a watching world. In other words, enjoying God is, is good for God, gives him glory, it's good for us, brings us joy, and it's also good for the world. Enjoying God is one of the ways in which we tell a gospel story to a watching world. So imagine with me, right, you've got two brothers, okay? We'll call one of the brothers Ryan, and uh, you talk to Ryan, and he tells you that uh, he got up this morning, and he had breakfast with his dad. And actually, he, he does this most mornings. He, he drinks coffee, they eat toast, and they like talk about the day ahead, anticipate things, kind of share some of the things they're concerned about. And then Ryan tells you that uh, what he's planning to do next uh, is go home after school and uh, spend some more time with his dad. They're going to throw a ball, they're going to watch a show, they're going to catch up, just going just to do some stuff together. Well, a little while later, you meet, you meet Ryan's brother, David, right? And David tells you um, he got up super late today, and he rushed out of the house without having any breakfast. And then um, he tells you that his plan for the day is to go home and close the door to his bedroom, uh, listen to music, and play Fortnite, right? And then you ask David about his dad, and David seems kind of embarrassed 
and dismisses your questions kind of with a grunt. Here's my question. What conclusions will you draw about the father from the behavior of each child? What conclusions will you draw about, about the father? What kind of dad this guy is based on what Ryan has told you and what David has told you? And, and so here's my question for us as Christians. What conclusions does the watching world draw about our God on the basis of the behavior of us, his children? If someone doesn't know God, they just know one of his children, right? what are they going to conclude about the father? Are they going to think our God is uh, absent, neglectful? Do they even know you have a father? Or are they going to think, like, are they going to think, man, he's like an angry, he's an angry dad. He's a, he's a judgmental father. He's looking to condemn everyone. Um, maybe worse. Yeah, probably worse. Is their conclusion going to be that your dad's a Republican? And those priorities revolve around the hill, right? God loves Fox News, right? Is that, is that what people are going to conclude based on your life? I could say all the things about the other side of the aisle as well. Let me say something that I'm saying with conviction in my own soul, not condemnation for anyone else, okay? But I invite you to join me with this conviction. The world is already full of half-hearted, mediocre, nominal Christians, and it doesn't need any more of them. It just doesn't need any more of them. Of Christians who talk about God, but actually don't know Him at all, and whose lives give you no compelling reason to ever want to get to know their dads. And God calls us to enjoy Him. <laughs> to prize him above all else, not just because it makes him look glorious, not just because it's for our joy, but because as we do that, we start to tell a gospel story. We start to be like, like Moses here in, in this text. When God becomes the center of our lives, the greatest treasure of all, it changes us. We start to live with grace and generosity and have perseverance when things, when things are hard, and we start to live the kind of life that makes people wish they had our God as their dad. It's a powerful witness to a watching world for us to enjoy our God. God doesn't just save us from sin. He saves us to enjoy our relationship with him. He wants us to enjoy him for his glory, for our good, for the good of a watching world. So don't settle for less. Want more. Want more. Desire more. Ultimately, that's what our, what our sermon series is going to be about. We're going to look together at what we should enjoy about God, and how, and how is important, how do we actually go about enjoying him? Come back next week, we have a special guest preacher. Um, come back hungry, hungry for more. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thanks for these moments that we've been able to spend together in your words. And thank you for the main point of this text that Christianity is about forgiveness of sin. We do have union with you. We've been brought into relationship with you, reconciled to you, not on the basis of anything we have done, but solely by your grace toward us, that any and all of us tonight can believe in Jesus and find that we are saved. But Lord, we thank you that 
that for you, that's not enough. You haven't just forgiven our sin. You call us to enjoy a relationship with you. And we pray that we would, uh, that we would uh, find you more beautiful, more satisfying, more rewarding than any earthly joys, and that we would experience earthly joys as um, the vehicles through which we get more of you. So uh, enable us to do this for your glory, for our good, for the good of the watching world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.